Olivier Rostang stepped into his role as creative director of Balmain a decade ago in 2011. And then last September 2021, during that month's Paris Fashion Week, he and his Balmain team celebrated his 10 years in a very special way with a two-day Balmain festival, which combined a runway and concert stage and was surrounded by a special ephemeral festival village with food trucks offering creations from some of Paris's most daring young chefs. It was all set on an island in the middle of the Seine River on the western edge of Paris, centered around the Seine Musicale, which is a beautiful new concert hall designed by the architect Jean Nouvel. 6,000 people came to the closing night's concert, and all proceeds from the two days of food, festivities, fashion, and music were donated to Red, which is Balmain's longtime charitable partner, helping to raise money for the Global Fund's essential fight to end AIDS in our lifetime. So, summing all that up, Let's just say that Olivier Rustang definitely knows how to make a moment special. And that explains the theme of today's episode, the most special Balmain moments of the last decade. We'll be sitting down to talk once again with Olivier Rustang, and he will walk us through some of the house's most standout events and happenings of the past 10 years. And once again, you should feel free to click on the podcast link to the podcast webpage, because there you'll be able to view images and videos from the moments that we discussed today. Hello, I'm John Gilligan. For today's episode of Letteria Baman, we continue our series of one-on-one conversations with Olivier Rustang as we explore the house's Rustang decade. The first of this four-part series began with a conversation about Rustang's September runway, which contained a powerful retrospective moment. The second episode had us meeting with Olivier Rustang again to talk about his eight favorite runway collections. The third episode had us getting together once again with Olivier to talk about some of Rustang's most striking Balmain campaigns. And today, as I just noted, we're hoping to go through some of the most important house moments of the past decade. To prepare for that, Olivier Rustang, his design team, and I have had several discussions about the most important house events since 2011, together selecting a handful of unique Balmain days and nights with each one helping to shed some light on Olivia Rustang's values and commitments, as well as the house's distinctive DNA. I am Olivier Rustin. Welcome to my world. Welcome to my world. Bienvenue à l'Atelier Balmain. Bienvenue à l'Atelier Balmain. Hey, Olivier, good morning. How are you feeling today? Hi, John. I'm great. How are you? I'm great, too. Thanks very much. So, you know, Olivier, I know we've already covered a lot of the ground that we've explored in the Rustang Decade of Balmain, and I'm sure you're probably very exhausted from all these episodes. But hey, don't worry. This is the final wrap-up of our four-part look at the last 10 years. So in the previous episodes, we chatted about the last September runway, and particularly that strong retrospective section of that show. And we discussed your favorite collections and your favorite campaigns. And now we thought that maybe the best thing to do is group what's remaining into a category that we're calling your key Balmain moments. These are neither collections nor campaigns. Instead, these are moments when you created something special for the house, either working in partnership with somebody else or to celebrate an important milestone. So I thought maybe we could talk about them one by one and talk about how they really reflect your distinctive and changed vision for the house. Yes, let's do it. Okay, so the first moment we selected took place in June 2015. It's when you collaborated with the Ballet of the Paris Opera on a beautiful ballet from a young choreographer named Sebastian Bertrand. 
Bouchard reached out to you to collaborate on the Renaissance, yes. his creation that premiered in 2015 at this city's legendary opera house. That ballet was paying tribute to the refinement of the École des Danses Françaises, from the Versailles of Louis XIV to the opera Garnier today, relying on Mendelssohn's Violin Concerto No. 2 and 16 dancers of the Paris Opera. And six of those dancers were Etoile, which is the highest grouping of the opera ballet's hierarchy of dancers. So since this opera was celebrating the elegance, sophistication, and opulence of the legendary French Dance Academy, Bertrout explained to the press that a collaboration with Balmain seemed to him to be a natural fit, and that's why he reached out to you. Your designs definitely relied on the famous savoir-faire of the Balmain Atelier. There were impressive golden and silver embellishments covering flesh-colored performance pieces, and the rhinestones and pearls were embroidered directly into the bodysuits, tights, and draped tees. Could you, Olivia, talk a little bit about how it was to work on this special project so early in your career at Balmain? Because I'm imagining designing for a dancer's specific needs obviously is going to bring a whole new set of challenges to your work, right? Because these dancers are required to perform all of those leaps and all those amazing physical movements, and they need to always look perfectly graceful and light as a feather. So obviously you had to be very careful about what you designed and how it was created. You had to be sure that it would work perfectly in that most demanding of environments. So I'm assuming you had to learn a lot, both from Bertrand and from his dancers, about what was going to work and what wasn't going to work, as you and the Balmain Atelier worked to create all these outfits for the troupe. John, it was so much work. <laughs> it was just so much work, but it was so incredible working for a ballet because I always, I always loved, as you know, music, and I always loved movements and dance. And I have done a couple of concert or stage even that before the ballet, I worked with Beyonce. But working for a classic opera, it's completely different than working for different kind of different moves, you know. And so it was a long process. Uh, Sébastien uh, Berthaud called us and me for creating uh, the entire costumes of this ballet. And he picked one of his favorite collections, which was the Fabergé, because he was obsessed with the pearls. That's interesting. And yeah, he was obsessed with the pearls, which I was like, I love that collection, but for a ballet with those pearls, imagine if there is one falling, <laughs> what could happen to the dancer? So, <laughs> I mean, we made it clear that those pearls stay on the clothes. Um, it was just amazing because invited me to all the rehearsal from the day one till the last day. We worked really close to each other. I discovered the incredible rooms of opera because I have done shows at the Opera Garnier, but I never been in the backstage, you know, the behind the scene of the opera. So we were, you know, there are those incredible rooms uh, under the roof in the opera, under the dome, you know, where basically like they're rehearsing and they can see you can see the entire city of Paris, which is incredible. And I remember it was during summer that we were doing all these incredible rehearsals. So we took the measurements of all the dancers. We did back and forth with the costumes because we wanted, and I love the idea of Sebastian, we decided to create this, the Fabergé collection on them, but totally nude beige uh, colors. And it was fantastic. It was really fantastic because um, he brought again the the pearl story into another atmosphere, another ambience, you know. 
and really elegant, really chic, really French, uh, really timeless at the same time. So um, we worked a lot on that because the movement of a dancer of classic opera is really different than what we were used to. So we made sure that we all the movement they could feel good in and comfortable with. Um, that was a struggle because sometimes the embroideries, they are, because I love real embroideries with uh, real materials, and sometimes they're a bit heavy. So making sure that there is the right weight when you dance, it's not easy. And we wanted, we are so perfectionist that we did many compromise, they did many compromise, but I can see one point, there was a jacket, I remember that was really heavy. And Sebastian was like, no, it's going to be too heavy for the dancer. And I remember one of the dancers said, no, I want to wear it. I will dance with it. And so I remember the rehearsal, he took the jacket, put on his shoulders and dance like if he was wearing a T-shirt. But that jacket was really heavy. And that showed me so much the love for the house and for the craftsmanship that no matter the weight, they will dance the way that they should do, um, even if even if it was heavy. So it was such an incredible collaboration. And on top of that, um, before me, there was Jean-Paul Gaultier, Karl Lagerfeld, Christian Lacroix, you know, uh, that have created those uh, different ballets. But, you know, I, I have a little uh, behind the scene. I have seen some costume of them that they're still at the opera. So I was like, wow, after Jean-Paul, after Karl, after Christian, and, you know, like knowing that I can put my step as well in the opera. I was just like, another dream come true, you know? Yeah, I imagine. And beyond that, Olivier, what a beautiful ballet. I mean, with Mendelssohn's music, Bertrand's choreography, all of those star dancers and your incredible designs. And then don't forget, it was all set inside the incredible interiors of the Paris Opera. So the mix was so perfect. It, I mean, I'm sure I'm not the only one to say it. I'll never forget it. It was just such a beautiful creation to just sit back and and absorb. The day of the ballet, of the presentation was incredible because Celine Dion came and she was next to me and we were crying, me and her, because it was so much emotions. And she was grabbing my hands. Imagine Celine Dion grabbing my hands. I was just like, wow, man, like imagine. Oh, wow, like, Olivia, I really love that story. Wow, was something really impressive. So I guess this is a very good time to remind everyone that we will be posting links to videos and images of the ballet on the podcast webpage. Links that hopefully will help you understand why this ballet was so beautiful that it actually, as Olivia just noted, it actually moved Celine Dion to cry. And Celine, in case you're listening, I can agree with you. Like I've already said, it was a powerful mix that left a really strong impression. So let's move on. Our next Olivier Rustang Balmain moment happened during the Cannes Film Festival, which maybe probably could be described as the world's most important film festival. It's a festival that happens every spring in southern France, in the city of Cannes on the beautiful French Riviera, and every festival lasts 12 days. And of course, these are 12 days that are filled with the world's best actors and directors, introducing the most impressive new films from all across the world. This particular Balmain Cannes Film Festival moment happened in May 2018. A group of talented French actors was planning to be in Cannes that year, and they reached out to you for your help. The actors, who were 16 black French women, yeah. were there not to premiere a film. Instead, they were determined to communicate an important message to the film industry. 
They knew that if you could partner with them on that message, not only would they look more beautiful, but also their message would get a lot more play in the French media, which of course it did. These were the actors behind the groundbreaking movement known here as Noir n'est pas mon métier, which translates roughly into being black is not my profession. That movement and the best-selling book of the same name relied on this group of women's talent, humor, and honesty as these professionals worked to educate the French public about the prejudice and difficulties that they've had to face as actors here in France. Basically, these women were more than over having to deal constantly with racism, only being offered certain types of roles. So they were being typecast time and time again for the same types of very limited roles for black women in movie after movie. They were determined to make very clear that they were professional actors, that acting was their job, and that, just as their title of their movement stated, being black was not their profession. They were sick of only being considered for the same stereotypical roles over and over again. So when they approached you to help them make a true splash at the Cannes Film Festival, it sounds like, Olivia, you were instantly on board, uh, creating 16 distinct couture creations that ensured a strong, powerful, and beautiful image of these women as they walked up the famous red carpet-covered steps before making their entrance into the world's most respected film festival. Because during the festival for all 12 nights, French television has a live early evening broadcast of the movie stars walking up the famous red carpeted steps of the Festival Palace, which is the building where all the films are shown. So that moment when these 16 actors walked up and posed on the steps in your 16 Beaumont couture creations, well, that was carried live on French TV, and it actually made a very big impression in the French media, definitely helping these actors to spread their message that much farther. So, Olivia, maybe you can explain a little bit about what happened that day and what drew you to their cause. Yeah, um, so it was 16 actresses, 16 black actresses. And and it's obviously the point of, of this movement. The movement is called in France, Noir n'est pas mon métier. Black is not my job. And um, we decided uh, to create those incredible gowns on those incredible women because when you speak with them, you realize that, and we all know, but sometimes the problem is that it's not because you know that you fight for uh, or against it, but um, those women were fighting because they say, my color is not going to define the role that I'm going to play in your movie. And, and I think it's really important to mention it because sometimes France forget to say that there's still much, too much racism in this country. And we need to fight against that racism because I don't want that a kid tomorrow, she will say, Oh, I want to be actress, but the only job that I can do in the movie will be that kind of job. What does it mean that your color will define your social position, your position in the industry, in the social, uh, uh, world, you know, like this is, this is where this movement is really important. And, and I love being part of that moment with my little, little, uh, fashion. But I think, I think it was such a strong moment for France to say to Cannes, which was one of the oldest and prestigious, um, movie week saying, guys, don't you think you forgot something? through the years 
You all look so incredible and you're all so talented and you all have such a great vision of what's going to be the future and art and... But don't you think you forgot something? So I think this is the beauty of, of working with them. It was just like we were showing to the cinema that there is a lot of work to do and basically saying black is not my job, noir n'est pas mon métier means that them, they are women, but the little girls that dream of being actresses tomorrow, they will know that there were women before that had fight to make sure that her color, their color will not define what kind of job they will play in movies, but they will not define at all anything. Because today being black doesn't mean that you, you know, you go to a casting and this is the only job that you can get. And so that was really, really important. And it's not only in cinema, it's theater. It can be in movies, it can be in TV. And there is where this movement will definitely change the world. And it was before this movement that uh, called Black Lives Matter. And so I think it's all part of the same movement. Just don't define me by my color, define me by who I am. My color is part of me, but it will not only define me. So, Olivia, it's also really interesting, if I could add right here, your own personal connection to this moment. Because when you had your retrospective in September, I remember the fashion critics finally seemed to be ready to acknowledge that you had been someone who, over the last 10 years, has been speaking up for inclusion and diversity in fashion. And you had been doing that from day one. And it, from even before, it seemed that a lot of people in the fashion world even knew how to define those terms. And I'm looking through some of the interviews that you gave to the French media at the time of the Cannes Festival in 2018, and you noted that the book that these women had written, which is an amazing book along with the exhibit, was a strong and clear message to the powers that be in the cinema and theater world. But in those same interviews, you also mentioned that you wanted to send the same message to the fashion world and that you were hoping that others would join you in the fight for true inclusion and diversity in your own industry. And even though 2018 wasn't all that long ago, but reading all these interviews today, it makes you realize that fashion, well, you know, unfortunately, fashion has never led the charge for needed changes. Fashion world has been pretty damn slow to face the truth and to move forward on this very important issue. I think... I think the problem of fashion through this decade that I, I, I went through with Barman is that fashion is hypocrite. They always love saying that it's avant-garde, but I always say when you look at a fashion show and you believe that the fashion show was really modern because maybe there is like sweatshirt in neoprene, but there is no one color, not diverse origin, and you don't even see that it's definitely not modern and you just got stuck on on the on the cut of a pair of jeans of a white t-shirt you know there you realize that maybe you miss something and so the problem of fashion is that it became an ecosystem without looking at the world that has been built through these last years you know and and fashion got stuck into an aesthetic that was completely wrong and i think I will tell you, social media helped fashion to open their eyes. Because, you know, when you create a magazine and maybe your team are all the same people in a way, not the same, but let's say that you, you make sure that they become, 
you know, like robots, and they all belong to one kind of aesthetic, one kind of vision. At that point, you realize that this is where the problem starts. And on top of that, since that you just do magazines, sometimes you you just make sure that fashion just talk to one kind of person. And what was good with social media is that when those magazines start to be part of social media, they realize that actually the generation that is so young and so different that what they used to uh, for those last years, they tell them, guys, I don't recognize myself in your vision. I don't recognize myself in what you pretend that the world is because the world is not that. I'm different than what you pretend me to be. And I think this is where social media has been really an impact in a revolution, in not only in fashion, but in the cinema, in many industries, to say, but how many black person can you can you see, you know, in a magazine? You know, how many black people can you see as a CEO? You know, how many black designers can you see? You know, and that's where I think the world has changed and for the good. There is so much work still. But um, me, to give you an example, I started my career like oh, like now 10 years ago. 10 years ago, no one mentioned my color. And I was saying to people, guys, can, can we talk about inclusivity and diversity? But you know, the worst racism in the world is when they say, oh, we are not racist, so why should we talk about it? And you know, you at one point you're just like, Guys, there's so much racism. Wake up, open your eyes. But when they say no, there's no point to talk about it. The world has changed. It's much better. You're like, no, it's not better. And they still fight to do. And so there is where now it's been three. I mean, it's been, let's say, four years. No, three years now, I feel that people start to to connect the dots, let's say, and say, ah, yeah, you're black, uh, you know. But guys, I just been the same black person 10 years ago, just you didn't want to mention it because it makes you uncomfortable. Because it's always like that, you know, when you're part of the party, and there's only one black person, they always make you feel, you know, that you're not black, because like that, they feel like there's no luck. Because when they realize that you're black, a middle of 20 person, they say, Oh, yeah, you're right, there's only one person black. So they would rather to skip the subject and say, you're white, like that, they feel like there was not a lack of black people. So Olivia, yeah, it's, it's definitely fascinating to think about your own trajectory, right? To look at your history with this issue in the fashion world and to think about how, as you just mentioned, that people seem to suddenly just to have noticed that you're black. But for the past 10 years, you've actually been fighting for inclusion and diversity on the runway and in campaigns, actually since the very first day you started. And, well, many forget that when you were doing that, when you first started doing that, you made more than a few people uncomfortable. I mean, let's be honest. Like, I think racism, it's a thing. The, the, the problem of racism is, is that most of the people that are racist, they don't believe they're racist. So <laughs> usually this is the case where you just try to tell them your reaction, your vision, everything that you are telling me right now is about racism. And usually the problem of the racists is that they really believe they are not. And usually when you talk to a racist person, they say, oh, come on, the world has changed. Oh, come on, we are really open, you know. They, they, but what they don't understand is that I don't want to be tolerated. I don't want to be accepted. I just want to be part of it. You know what I mean? And so there is where there's still a lot of work to do. And honestly, not only in fashion, in many, many industries. So at least, you know, if, 
if there is one thing that I'm really proud of in my career is that I'm sure that many kids today, when they will look at fashion and dream of working in fashion, they will say, oh, okay, there is a black guy that called Olivier Roustin that uh, has been part of a French luxury house from 1945. Uh, and, um, and if he made it, I can do it. So that, that's what matters to me. So Olivier, another of your commitments is Red, which is a group with whom you've been working very closely for many years. And Red, for those listeners who are not already aware, Red is a fundraising organization that raises money for the Global Fund's work in battling AIDS. It is a pretty impressive record of getting the needed funds for educating, empowering, and protecting some of the most vulnerable people in our world. And Olivia, this charity seems to really hit home with you. You've worked very closely with Bono, the U2 singer, who is also Red's leader and public face, as well as the other leaders of this charity, as you've worked on innovative strategies to push for better fundraising and education efforts. And your commitment to this battle has resulted in a series of pretty compelling and successful fundraising moments over the several years. So Olivier, maybe you could talk a little bit about why Red and the Global Fund is so important to you. Yeah, I think I think I met Bono years, years ago. I was, I think, in New York. I think it was around maybe... I don't know, 2014 or 13. I don't remember exactly. And um, it's interesting because Bono knew my background because he knew that I came from an orphanage. Um, at that time, I didn't really know where I come from. You know, I knew I was coming from Africa because, I mean, that's the only thing that I should know. I mean, if, <laughs> just, it's hard to believe that I would be Scandinavian, right? So, <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I mean, he met me and, and he was really intrigued by my uh, origins, you know, which me, I didn't know at that time. I discovered, of course, uh, three years ago now uh, with my documentary. And when he explained me what red means, you know, I was just like, let's do it. I want to be part of it. I want to be part of it as well, because it's really interesting when you know, like for me, coming from an orphanage from Africa and knowing the difficulties of health there and even, you know, the um, AIDS that is so, uh, that it's so much still and the idea of maybe, you know, like women having AIDS and uh, having their kid that might have AIDS when you know that with some actions from us, we can, we will never stop maybe it, but we can make sure that there is less, you know, there is less of it. And so um, I was like, I've been so lucky in my life, you know, I've been adopted. Uh, healthy with my parents in Bordeaux, but there are so many other kids that didn't have that chance. So, of course, it's something that to me, it's really personal, even if in that sense, I'm not a victim because I've been lucky enough to have been adopted and healthy. But, um, but so many kids have not that chance. So many women have not that chance. So many men have not that chance. And, and so I think with Red, what is great is that we can push for a better world and what I'm trying to do with them it's using my platforms my talent whatever I have in my hands to collaborate uh, anytime that I can and fundraise for for again creating a better world and so just like Bono you've been able to use your platform to push Red's message into the fashion world and to let so many new people hear about what they're doing and at the same time, help raise the money needed for fighting AIDS, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. 
And one of the most interesting things that you've done with Red took place during the Met Ball in 2018, when you paired up with Red and an oppressive group of celebrities to create what you called your very special Red Carpet. So Olivia, for that initiative, you decided to create some one-of-a-kind designs for Balmain's table of Met Ball guests that year. And it was a pretty impressive list of guests. So as I look at the list now, it was uh, Jennifer Lopez, Julia Pinoche, Natalia Vodianova, Natasha Poli, Julia Stegner, Alex Rodriguez, and Trevor Noah. Yeah. So Olivia, could you talk a little bit about that moment? Uh, We decided to create an incredible capsule of gowns, really, really couture. Yeah, it was it was pretty spectacular at that time because uh and we put those dresses in auction uh to fundraise and um and again those dresses were really couture. So we get money again for for red and that was such a special moment. We call that red carpet because definitely it was definitely red carpet. Um but it was it was just amazing amazing night. We had a lot of fun as well, to be honest. So anyway, it was really good. So as I just mentioned, that was just one of the many things that Balmain and you have done in partnership with Red. You've also worked on many smaller events for Red. And even I think every few months you partner on a new effort, including that recent event you did in Miami for the Miami Art Basel artwork and the Red Party on December 1st, which is World AIDS Day. So every season you do at least one or two special partnerships with Red, right? Yeah, we are really close to Red and we really try to make sure that anytime we have an event, anytime we can do something together, we do like when we decided to do the festival in uh, La Seine Musicale, the last one, 6,000 tickets has been sold uh, for charity for Red. So, and the ticket was 15 euros. So um, every time that we can create something that can incorporate Red, we do. Because again, fashion, it's more exciting when it can help the world instead of selling clothes. And Olivia, that special, that annual Bauman Festival is definitely one of your key Bauman moments. As we discussed a few times during these episodes, Bauman had its second festival during last fall's Paris Fashion Week, and it definitely was a unique event. And as much a rock concert as a runway, it's where you present the house's latest collections to thousands during a joy-filled all-night musical celebration. So your first festival, which was in June 2019, was an incredible success. But then, of course, you had to cancel 2020's planned festival due to COVID and health regulations and concerns, right? But you've obviously come roaring back with the festival this year. You've extended it to last two full days. You moved to a much bigger venue, and that allowed you to invite thousands more people. And it sounds like next year, which you and your team are already planning now, is going to be even bigger, even longer, even better. So maybe you could explain a little bit about the festival. Like, Olivia, why is it so important for you to present your fashion in this unique way once a year? I don't know. Maybe it's easy if you you start at the beginning. Like, where did the idea come from for the very first Balmain Festival in 2019? It was La Fête de la Musique. Uh, so in France, this Fête de la Musique is an entire night where music is everywhere in the city and people are drinking, dancing, listening to music in every bar, streets of the city. And me that night, um, 
it's the longest night of the of the year. I decided to create a fashion show, men and women, but it was more menswear, where I invited singers for like two hours after my show and dancing and enjoying the night all together. I think we had 2,000 people at that time. Um, and it was two years ago. So now we had 6,000 last September. Imagine next September. I wanted this sense of togetherness again. I wanted that sense of like, let's enjoy the Fête de la Musique together. Um, because in French, we say, plus on est de fou, plus on rit, which means like, more we are, more we have fun, you know? And, and I have to say, I prefer fashion shows when there's such a big crowd than just a fashion show when there's like 50 people. Uh, because sometimes actually those 50 people are not even fun. So, <laughs> so at least let's get some joy. Um, yeah, it was years ago. I'm a bit disappointed because at that time fashion didn't really understand what means inclusivity. Uh, I think they realized it after COVID maybe. But at that time, you know, I remember like people didn't get it. Many of them. Some of them, yes. Some of them, no. But I was a bit surprised because like, wow, that's so new and no one really pick up the newness of it and the concept of it to actually understand that maybe fashion could be cool if we open the door a bit more. Um, at that time, they didn't get it much, I think. But I mean, now they get it. So so yeah, Olivia, they definitely do seem to have got the message. Huh? And to talk about the Belmont Festival is to really continue a theme that we've been touching on throughout the podcast. We heard Beyonce's message. We've spoken about Rihanna and Kanye as they partnered with you on campaigns. And for almost every one of your collections, every one of your runways over the past 10 years, there's usually a strong musical inspiration and message behind them. You've said several times that you really can't separate your music from your design work. And you've explained that to understand your collections, one really needs to understand the music that has inspired them. And so for the Bauman Festival, it definitely seems to make perfect sense for your vision of fashion. And Olivia, your Bauman creations work pretty well, right? When they're presented alongside the musicians that you love, when they're sharing a concert stage with some of the music you listen to, when the models are walking down a runway to the music that has inspired you. Yes, yes. Music has always been part of my life, so I think it was important to invite incredible singers and and enjoy the night with us. So Olivia, you've actually raised a lot of money for Red each time because you're not only asking people who are attending to give donations, but you set it up like a real music festival. There's food sold from some of the city's best chefs who are set up in food trucks on the festival grounds. And there's a bunch of one-of-a-kind special Balmain concert merchandise. And all of the proceeds from all of this is going to Red in the fight against yeah, AIDS, yeah, it which was is pretty, pretty amazing. There was like the trucks like with the food, with Barman, the T-shirts, like the the hat, like there was, it was like a Barman village, you know, for it. So very much like that. And so this year you expanded the festival so that it was actually three times the size of the original, and it lasted two nights instead of just one night. And so Olivia actually is becoming your own little mini Balman Coachella, right? Yes, it's a Balman Coachella. Who doesn't like Coachella? So continuing on with a theme of joyful and musical moments. Another very interesting house moment happened in the summer of 2020 when you celebrated music, Balmain's Couture Heritage, the city of Paris, and more than anything else, Olivier, you were celebrating us moving past COVID as we were slowly being allowed back outside after all those strict lockdowns of the first wave of the pandemic here in Paris. And this 2020 summer celebration, which coincided with the house's 75th anniversary, well, 
It could not have been more Parisian. It even took place on a quintessential Parisian mode of transport, a peniche. And peniche are the long, enormous, flat-bedded barges that have long been used to ship items to the very heart of Paris as they move up and down the French capital's river, the Seine. And your show's peniche, though, was a very special one because it had been outfitted with a shining mirror deck and it carried 21 models, a dozen dancers, you and one of your favorite French singers, Yusu, past all of those postcard views of the historic part of Paris, starting just below the Eiffel Tower and ending up in the shadow of Notre Dame. And that unique river pathway of this one-of-a-kind musical runway was reflected in the presentation's very distinctive name, Bauman sur Seine. And so, Olivier, could you explain why you decided to create this unique, very Parisian moment? Balmain sur Seine, yes. This is one of my favorite moments in my career. It was COVID. We couldn't do much. It was hard. It was tough. And I was like, why don't we... I think the world was based on this word called social distance. So I was just like, why don't we create a show that's going to move around Paris? So we took a boat we shown the couture of today and the couture of yesterday, which means some pieces come from 1950, some pieces from 1960, some pieces from 1970, from 1980, till now, my pieces. And it was interesting to do a retrospective of Balmain because, you know, Balmain, Monsieur Balmain created a house after the Second War, which means he has a strong confidence to say after Second War, you know, I'm going to create a brand called Balmain his name. And I was like, in homage to him, I said, after the COVID, even if he was not finished, but he was still slowing down, you know, I was like, at least let's give some joy to the Paris, to this city that we call the city of light. So we took a boat, we had incredible models, and we presented the archives of the house and my archives as well, together, to show as well that there is a barman in 1945, and there is a barman in 2020. It was such a magical moment because people were screaming around the river on the border. They were just like, oh my God, we are seeing a Bauman show. And on top of that, of course, as you mentioned, I love music. So I invited Isolt to perform all through the river. And it was just so beautiful because we were doing a concert on the boat with a fashion show on the boat. And people were just like incredibly surprised because... We didn't say much, you know, we were just like, okay, it's going to be Sunday. I mean, I say it's okay, but no, it was such a big production, obviously. But sometimes that's my thing. You know, I'm always, I keep saying it's okay, even if it's so tough. Yeah, amazing. And, um, and yeah, we did that that day and it was so spectacular and magical. It started to rain for like two minutes before leaving the boat. And after that, we got a rainbow. And I was like, I'm a lucky person. <laughs> Um, and the sky started to get blue. We had an incredible sunset. And on the voice on Isolt, we presented the new Bauman Couture collection in a way. And yeah, as one of the many who watched this happen from one of the bridges that Bauman sur Seine passed under, I can definitely confirm it was a very, it was really a joy-filled moment. Olivia, you had all these dancers. You had the music, the models, the traveling runway, moving through the center of beautiful Paris. And all this was happening on a perfect, crisp and clear evening. It was early in the summer, 
right when Paris has those incredible, beautiful evenings when the sun sets very, very late at night. And then again, it wasn't just any boat. Right. This was basically a gigantic flatbedded warehouse moving up the Seine River. And it was a one-of-a-kind runway. You had covered the interior with mirrors. And your listeners really need to imagine this gigantic, shimmering, flatbedded boat moving slowly through the center of Paris, past all of these famous monuments and buildings, passing underneath all of these elegant bridges with this collection of historic couture. And then the music. You had this music, and you made sure that your dancers and the music referenced what was going on back at that moment. Because back then, we weren't just concerned about the pandemic. This was actually right after the killing of George Floyd. And more people, and not just Americans, were becoming aware of and talking about the need to fight for social justice and for long-delayed changes. And back in June 2020, well, back then, fashion and the rest of the world seemed ready to finally admit that, yes, Black Lives Matter. So you, Olivier, you and your team, you made very sure that the social justice message was a key part of the presentation that day, right? Yeah. The world needed joy. The world needed hope. The world needed beauty at that time. And so then, Olivia, when I read your interviews and press release from that time, you made it clear that even though everyone was worried, angry, on edge, and more than a little bit depressed, you pointed out that your own situation, your own story, well, it was something that had made you an optimist. Because as you explained then, and if I can paraphrase now, you said that when you were growing up, no one would have ever imagined that someone who looks like you would be occupying the position that you hold today, overseeing all the collections at an historic Parisian French house. And because of that, that's why you still believe that change can happen. That's why you told us that progress is always possible. Definitely. I mean, I think it was nice as well to see the meaning of it was like, I'm going to present you pieces from 1950 that no black designer at that time could have done it because there was no black designer in the 1950. But those pieces belongs to that kind of era. So it was a message of saying, Barman is from 1945, we are in 2020, and guys, look at those changes. 75 years of battle to one day say, we are creating a revolution. And I think the message of me being on that boat as well was a message of hope for many kids and generations that says, you know what, tomorrow it can be me again, you know? So, so yeah, there was that message of, of, the world is changing, but let's keep, let's not be lazy, you know, and let's keep fighting. And obviously just the fact that they were going up and down the Seine and you had this amazingly beautiful day filled with rainbows and blue skies and they're going by Notre Dame, the Louvre, the Eiffel Tower. You were passing every single famous monument that we've all grown up seeing in all those Parisian movies, books, and postcards. So the city's beauty was very much a part of that show, right? And once again, it was a salute to Paris itself, which is so important to your campaigns, to your collections, and all your inspirations, right? Always Paris will be in my heart, in my mind, and in my inspiration. That's very clear in your work. Okay, so finally, Olivier, and I know you're really getting tired of all these questions. Of course not. I love it. I mean, thank God, like I have the chance to, to talk about 
these incredible moments and give some insights. It's so nice to talk about it. So we started out looking back at Balmain's Rustang era a few episodes ago, and we began with Beyonce's tape message at the September Balmain Festival. And she spoke about how important your friendship was to her and how she felt about the work that you've done as you've opened doors for others. And she also mentioned her love for your creations, how important many of her designs have been for her in both her professional and personal life. And in that message, she also mentioned an amazing pair of weekends in 2018 when Beyonce gave legendary performances at Coachella. In fact, the New York Times summed them up by saying, there's not likely to be a more meaningful, absorbing, forceful, and radical performance by an American musician this year or any year soon than Beyonce's headlining set at Coachella. So Olivia, you worked very closely with Beyonce, working insanely hard to dress her and all the hundreds of singers, dancers, and musicians who were also part of those amazing Coachella Festival weekends. How did it feel to play such a key part in creating that ambience and creating that amazing moment? Could you speak a little bit about that, about those Coachella weekends, and how it was to work with Beyonce? Oh, I, my, I mean, oh my God. Uh, <laughs> I think, I think we started working maybe six months before the performance. Um, you need to understand that when you do a tour, you usually move, you know? So when you move, you cannot have that kind of production. So the first thing that Beyonce told me about Coachella was like, I want to create a moment that will stay in the history, something that is so special, above all because the speech of Beyonce will stay in the history that day. Of course, her performances, the dance, her, her voice, the music, the dancers, the musicians, the orchestra will stay in the history. But as well, when she spoke on stage, she definitely made sure to explain what is the world that we want to live in and all the battles that we need to fight for. So I started working with her six months before. And when I told you like working for Coachella is different than working for a tour is that in a tour you cannot have as, as many dancers as she had or musician. I think, I, I don't know, we were starting to imagine maybe a hundred dancers and I think we end up with 200 or 300, I don't remember exactly, but I just remember that there was a lot, a lot of sketches and a lot of clothes. Um, I've been working with her, it's just a dream. She's the most humble person, she's the most um, sharing. Yeah, I mean, I was staying with her through the rehearsals, we were checking the lights, we were checking the clothes checking the music, she was showing me the choreography to make sure that I would do the right clothes. Uh, she was explaining me the mood of every moment on stage to make sure that my sketches will define her mood and the, the movement. So um, it was really a work, working close to each other for weeks and weeks together in LA. Um, first, we obviously started from sketching from Paris and at one point, she told me it's time for you to be with us uh, in LA. So we spent a great time together uh, rehearsing in the studios and trying the clothes at her house as well. Um, I remember there was something so cute that happened. I think it was during Easter. Um, I was trying the clothes for her when she was dancing with the Destiny's Child and it was all the camouflage, strass, uh, 
because it was an homage to the Destiny's Child, you remember, and that video where she was in camouflage and out of like coming out from this island from the water. And, um, and the mother, Tina, came at that time when I was trying to close on her. And the mother say, oh my God, it's so interesting to see those clothes down from you now because I was the one to sketch and create the clothes for my daughter at that time. So it's just so interesting to see. <laughs> to see. So you're just like, thank you, Mrs. Tina. You know, like you're just like, I mean, you've been an inspiration for me because we all know the videos of Beyonce at that time were obviously now iconic, but um, has been an inspiration for the entire fashion industry through the generations. So having the approval of, of Tina, of Beyonce's mother, kind of make me feel good that day as well. Of course, I can imagine. You've mentioned in the past interviews, Olivier, that you love to work on collaborations because you always have a good time. You always seem to learn from your collaborators and how you always enjoy working with other talented people and you love being introduced to their vision. But this collaboration with Beyonce seems about taking it to basically a whole other level. And Olivier, I think you just explained in part why that happened. In addition, both you and Beyonce have said that this was a pairing of two perfectionists Two people who are never happy until every single tiny detail is absolutely perfect. And so, Olivia, for this collaboration, there's two very similar minds working together, right? As she mentioned, we are both Virgos. <laughs> it's just, if there is one thing that I could say in, as well in this podcast is that I will thank her forever for even if tomorrow everything stops. I mean... I think that my career has been based on dreaming and not having boundaries in my dreams and having meeting her, having, having find a way to create that relationship together and collaborating many times made me feel so proud that my world can stop tomorrow. You know, I will always remember that she has been part of my life and, and I will always be grateful. So, Right after these two special concerts, the two of you quickly paired up again, and you created a special charity collection based on the clothing that you had created for Coachella and helping to raise money for scholarships to HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities in the United States. And in addition, of course, Olivia, you worked on many of Beyonce's tours, and she's constantly photographed wearing your special designs in her own personal life. So for many of her most important personal moments, you'll see Beyonce wearing a Balmain. It's obvious that the two of you built a strong friendship and partnership over the last decade, and it looks like it's going to continue, right, going forward. As she mentioned, next 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So thanks a million, Olivier. Thank you so much for going through this decade of amazing moments with us. I'll just take this chance to reiterate one more time there's a collection of images and videos from these moments, collections and campaigns that we've been talking about during this and the previous three podcasts, and they can all be linked from the podcast text and viewed on the podcast webpage. Again, thanks very much, Olivier, for giving us all this time and for sharing so much about the key designs and moments of the Rustang decade. No, thank you. Thank you to all of you to hear this podcast. It means so much to me and hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed those last 10 years. <laughs>